Welcome to episode 35 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today I'm talking with longtime craft professional Robert Mahar. Robert teaches imaginative do-it-yourself projects through high-quality video tutorials on YouTube, Creative Live, and in-person workshops. The crafty content he develops and presents is often rooted in nostalgia, and his talent for reinventing old-school crafts with a decidedly modern twist has gained him a loyal following. Robert first became known in the world of craft and design as the proprietor of Mahar Dry Goods, which he owned from 2005 to 2010. Mahar Dry Goods was an online emporium of vintage and artisan-crafted curiosities for children. He curated this online collaboration of more than 50 artists, designers, and craftspeople to create the imaginative and unexpected. Never mass-produced, all Mahar Dry Goods items were handmade in the homes and studios of their creators, with an emphasis on recycled and sustainable materials whenever possible. A Midwesterner at heart, Robert has called Los Angeles home for more than 20 years with an education in studio arts and art history. He's worked in a variety of creative fields, including 13 years as an appraiser of modern and contemporary art. Robert Mahar, welcome. Abby, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. So you have an amazing YouTube channel. Uh, Oh, thank you. It's called Crafted with Robert. And these aren't just videos you're filming at home with like an iPhone camera or a point and shoot video camera. These are beautifully filmed, edited craft demonstration videos. They're full of light and color with like peppy music playing in the background. They're like watching TV. They really are. They're like the quality of watching TV. So (laughs) how did you get into doing this? Like, how did you get into video? You know, there was a period of time when I was sort of in transition. The store had closed and I had been uh, working with a company in uh, Santa Monica called Paper Source, which is a national chain. Um, helping direct their workshop program. And it just happened through a colleague that an opportunity arose to meet with this digital entertainment company that was also based in Santa Monica. And what they were doing was producing content for uh, their YouTube channel. And they were looking for someone at the time to come in and produce videos on um, parenting and crafting. And both of those were two things that I felt like you know, I had a little bit of background in. I'm, I'm not a parent myself, but having worked with children's products and um, doing that with Mahar Dry Goods for so long, um, I sat down, we had a conversation, we really hit it off. And so for six months straight, all I did was producing for them. So I was behind the camera. And at a certain point, they decided to sort of change the focus of their company. And I became this kind of um, hybrid of producer slash talent. So at that point, then, they were having me develop the projects, present them on camera, and produce the segments. And so that's kind of how that that came about. And I just, you know, it ended up being a really nice fit. I enjoyed the variety, being able to kind of, you know, dig into a new project for every video. And, And as you know, the videos are short format. They're only about three to four minutes long in general. So, um you know, we can really sort of whip through a a project in a short amount of time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think three to four minutes is perfect for YouTube. That's just about the right length for That's people. the attention span. Exactly. Yeah. So when you got in, so they're called the Kin Network. Is that what they're called? The, Kin Community. The Kin Correct. Community. Okay. Uh-huh. And they produce all kinds of different videos with sort of the idea that they're all focused on women, like things that women would be into. Correct. That's their primary demographic. Okay. Um, and are they working with companies to like produce videos on their behalf or like, what is the model here? I mean, what is sort of their purpose? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, it's interesting. I think that the world of online videos is very much in flux. I think platforms like YouTube sort of see themselves as the future of cable television. And so you see all of these companies coming in and trying to kind of find the sweet spot and the perfect formula for how they might fit into the future of um, that idea. And um, so at the time that I was filming with them heavily, they were producing their own content. So meaning they had their own crew. So we shot these videos primarily at my home. And so the crew would show up at seven in the morning and we'd have two camera guys and um, a sound guy and somebody that helped with lighting and all of that. So it really was a total team effort um, where they'd sort of descend. Um, we'd put together a, a full day and a full day would be about five videos that we would film. Wow. Uh-huh. It was a lot to get through. Um, and then they would then um, air those over a period of time. And um, they, uh, at the time, had about five different people that were sort of in my position. Um, the other four were primarily um, uh, women who worked with food. So I was kind of the DIY guy in the mix. Okay. All right. And so it sounds like since that or- original model, they've kind of shifted a little bit and changed. They, they have shifted a little bit. And what they're going after now is... Um, Primarily uh, YouTubers that have a really large audience and their own channel, and they're working on doing spin-off channels that will air on theirs. Um, it's a little confusing, I think, because like I said, they are trying to find their sweet spot. And it also kind of leaves me in the position of trying to figure out at this point, at this juncture, you know, how do I then try and move forward with creating my own content? So right, right, exactly. that's my challenge at the moment. Right. But I mean, I feel like you've got this, um, this sort of body of work that's yes. so beautiful and impressive Thank that you. that is in your pocket for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Okay. So when you kind of, um, got together with the kin network, you were working at paper source and you were working with their sort of organizing their classes. Is that right? And was that for just the Santa Monica store or was that like a... It- it was just the Santa Monica store. It kind of, you know, it, when the store closed, when my store closed, when Mahar Dry Goods closed, um, you know, I was, I felt a little bit lost and I kind of needed, um, I needed sort of a, a temporary position. And so they were just about to open up the Santa Monica store. So I was part of the team that helped with that management. And then um, as they kind of, you know, we figured out skill sets of all the various team members, I then kind of took on um, helping organize the workshop program for them. And what were some of the things that you learned from working at Paper Source about just sort of how people interact with craft and sort of what draws their eye and what they're interested in learning? Well, I think what was fascinating about working with Paper Source is I had never worked for a 
corporation before. I'd always worked for either myself or for little mom and pop shops. So there was a kind of a steep learning curve as far as like the lingo and the organization and um, the red tape. Um, But I did love being around the product line. I mean, they were always coming out with something clever and new. And it was definitely product focused, as you might imagine. Um, and I, I think one thing that they just sort of reinforced was, um, you know, trying to keep projects accessible because, you know, the very pedestrian people are walking in off of the street. They want to have a project to go home to do for the holidays or for their kids and or with their kids. And, um, you know, so it just needed to be something that could be um, accomplished in, you know, probably a short window of time, much like the videos, you know, this preceded that. So that was probably a good lesson at the time um, and have a relative amount of, of success, even without a lot of, you know, perhaps crafty prowess or background. Yeah, totally. And it's funny because I'm so drawn to the projects that are complicated. Like uh, just as a person, uh, yeah. like I always want the most complex thing and I want to design the most complex thing, but it's so true that most people, when they think of craft and doing a craft project, they want something they can accomplish in 45 minutes and sure. feel yeah. like that sense of satisfaction. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. So, okay. So that was kind of an in-between job. So let's go back now and talk about Mahar Dry Goods because that's how I first encountered you back in 2005. And And I, you, exactly. Yeah. um, Gosh, it's so funny. Life was really different online back then. But I can't believe it was that long ago, Abby. 2005. It seems like an eternity ago. Yes. Totally. So you had this, you kind of like appeared on the scene and you had this curated shop of handpicked things that were handmade and were um, for kids. And I was making toys. And I, so I was kind of like watching what was going on very keenly. And so I'm wondering, like, what were you doing when you got the idea? Like, I, I'm going to start this, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to open this up and this is really going to be a great idea. Well, at the time I had been working, as you had mentioned earlier, as an art appraiser and I was going on my 13th year. And I think that I was really, um, I was ready for a little bit of a change. And, um, 2005 was the same year that Etsy came on the scene And, um, you know, you started to see just the very beginnings of this handcrafted e-commerce happening. And I was fascinated with it. And, um, there were, there were a couple of things that happened at the time that really sort of propelled me forward with the idea. Um, I don't necessarily come from a crafty family, but I have one great aunt who, um, had six daughters, and she, for every single member of her immediate and extended family, created a quilt and an afghan. So she was probably the crazy, the 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 craftiest, craziest, craftiest <laughs> member of my family. Um, and at this point in time, my sister had gotten married and was expecting her first child. And this great aunt was getting up there in years, and she wasn't really at the point where she was able to do this sort of crafting anymore. And I really wanted to extend that tradition because I wanted my my sister's child to have, you know, this quilt. And so I started digging around online trying to find quilters. And um, just luck of the draw, I found uh, a sweet little old lady in Auburn, Kansas, who had sort of uh, a website that was... um, 
very basic, but you could tell she had amazing skill sets. And so I reached out to her and sent her a letter, explained the situation. I said, I'm, you know, I'm crafty. I've got a design background. I'm interested in perhaps picking out the pattern in the fabrics, but would you, you know, perhaps be willing then, um, to do the construction of the quilt for me and, and be, we formed, and be my, my crafty aunt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. She was my, she was my surrogate aunt for right, the, right, for the right. progress. And, um, it kind of worked like clockwork. Like it was really just a lovely collaboration. And I think that success of that kind of clicked something in my head. And I just thought, well, if I could do that with her, why can't I reach out to people with other skill sets to create other products? And I think that was, in in a sense, the genesis of the idea of working in this sort of collaborative environment. Um, you know, there were some artists that I dealt with in the shop that had ready-made product that I was, like, totally on board with. But then there were also a lot of artists and artisans that maybe had a skill set that I thought was amazing and perhaps out of my own reach but didn't necessarily share my aesthetic. And so I was able to approach them with projects and um, see if they might be willing to, uh, you know, try a project out with me. Okay, so a project like that would look like, like I remember you carried Mimi Kirchner's dolls and Mimi yes. and I are friends and yes. um, and have been friends probably since then and uh, all these years. So I adore Mimi. Yeah. yeah. So, so and we're she, still pals, which totally, is great. It's totally. She makes beautiful things. And, um, and so for a project like that or with another sort of similar kind of artisan, you would, um, you know, you might, might say like, will you make me a certain number of the, of this particular style and maybe in this color range or with this particular fabric like is that how those projects came sure together? i mean in in mimi's case uh, you know i had been following her work for a while it's gorgeous the the work she was doing at the time was a little bit more adult focused and um so i just approached her about perhaps doing a series of um girl dolls that were meant, you know, not to be played with roughly, um, you know, she's more in the, in the collectible doll market, uh, but that were a little bit more kid focused. And so she ended up doing a series of six really beautiful, um, child focused girl like dolls, uh, for the shop that were beautifully crafted. Um, so that was one example. I mean, another one might be, I don't know if you remember, I have these fantastic hobby horses that we used to carry. And I found a woman that had a sheep farm in Washington state and she and her family would shear the sheep, spin the wool, make the yarn, dye the yarn. And then she would hook rugs. And at some point she also decided she was going to start making hobby horses. And I found these on her website, but I approached her about the possibility of designing one that was a little bit more um, specific. We did one that kind of had like a thirties cartoon pie eye um, in my color way. And so I would sketch it up and, and send her color ideas and she'd send me back feedback. And, you know, so it would kind of go that way. It was always small batch. I mean, there was, this was never a, a mass production endeavor. Um, you know, and at most we would do maybe six to 12 at a time until they sold out. And then we'd go back and perhaps change up the colorway or, um, you know, tweak the design a little bit or just simply reorder another lot. Okay. So what was, I mean, to me, I feel like the, your advantage here was, and, and the advantage for the artisan here 
were a number of things. First of all, your site was really sort of the, the look and aesthetic of the way it, you know, when you clicked on it, it was very sort of nostalgic kind of 1930s, 40s, yes. I don't know, sort of old school toys. It had a real visual appeal, which frankly, at that time was pretty hard to achieve and fairly rare. Like it yes. wasn't a dime a dozen <laughs> to see beautiful blog designs and things like that, that you take it, you know, take for granted now. Mm-hmm. Like at that time, people had very old school websites with often poor photography and plain layouts. And it was right. hard to get anything better than that. So by working with you, they got to be in that storefront and that storefront was gorgeous. Thank you. So yes. that was number one. And then the other thing they got was your eye, right? Like your aesthetic eye to say, you know, here's what would do well. Like what if we did it in this particular style or in this color or more for little girls or, you know, just your, your taste and your art direction. Sure. Yeah, that's exactly true. I mean, I really tried to go at it with a curator's eye and I kind of had this vision of products that were a little bit more gender neutral. We weren't doing the pink and blue divide. And I wanted things that had a little bit more of, you know, as cliche as it might sound, sort of a a timeless or heirloom quality. And I think those are two probably words that have just been beaten into the ground. But you know, I wanted things to seem solid and well-designed and maybe like they had been around for a hundred years at that point and we were just bringing them back. Um, you know, and a lot of times it was finding, perhaps I've got a great library of vintage craft books and they provided a lot of inspiration for product ideas. And so that kind of, you know, helped informed this vision I had in my head of, of what I wanted the store to look like. Okay. And so these products, did the artists send them to you and did you photograph them or have somebody photograph them for the site? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I was a one man band, honestly, especially at the beginning. I got a little help as, as the time went on. But initially I was just, you know, I was, <laughs> I was learning Photoshop and setting up a little, you know, figuring out where in my kitchen that the light was best during what time of day and setting up a little vignette and photographing all of the product there and then going in and cleaning it up in Photoshop for the, for the site. Okay. Yeah. So, and did you do all like the coding and the design of the site itself or did you hire someone for that? No, I hired someone for that. That was part of my, I had a little chunk of money that I had saved up to kind of start this venture. And the bulk of that really went into the design of the website. And at the time, I spent um, hours just sort of like sifting through the web, looking for sites that were appealing to me in some way. And when it got down to it, I found that the bulk of them at the time were being created by um, the Seattle-based web design group, Aolidia. And so I approached them. And um, they were just starting out really too. So we were kind of like in this venture together and they just, they were such a joy to work with, like really patient and kind and had ideas that I hadn't even crossed my mind about functionality. I was coming to them more with like, this is what I want it to look like. And I know I want certain functions, but they were able to kind of like help flush out the project and really fill in all of the corners that I hadn't necessarily thought of. Right. And so smart to hire somebody and to put that chunk of money there. Cause that I think is the number one place where you need it to be right. And it needs to be beautiful and easy for the customer and intuitive to use. Um, and they feel like that's a mistake people make is to not invest in that from the beginning. 
Well, it's your calling card. It's what they see immediately. And if they get there and they are frustrated within the first five seconds of being there, like, where do I go? What am I looking for? Why would they stick around? Yeah, and they don't trust you. I mean, so much of online, especially in the earlier days of buying online, is really about trust. Yes. They can't see your face. They don't know who you are. They've clicked over here, maybe from somewhere. They don't know even know where. And they need to know right away and feel confident. Like, you're going to take their credit card information seriously and keep it <laughs> private true. and you're actually going to deliver the goods in a yes. timely way and it's going to be shipped properly and all of that is really about trust. So it's got to be easy and it's got to instill trust right from, in the first 10 seconds. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and Aolydia is still around. In fact, um, they're going to be guests on the show coming up. But oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they still do your sites. Like they have done three sites for me now and I adore them. I like, I just, they're my go-to. Um, they built aside from Mahar dry goods. I had a design blog junior society for seven years. They designed and, and, coded that for me. And then most recently, uh, sort of a personal portfolio website. Um, and yeah, I just, I think at this point, I just have a really nice working rapport with them and they've really focused in on, you know, artists and artisans and small businesses. And that's kind of become their niche. And I think they've done a great job. Yeah, totally. Okay. So one final question about Mahar Dry Goods, and then I want to talk about Junior Society. But um, Sure. So um, so the artists, were you purchasing this set of six or whatever items that you had commissioned essentially from these artists? Were you purchasing them outright from them and then um, and then hoping to make your money back? Or like, how did that financial arrangement work? You know, it varied from artist to artist and product to product. A lot of this, the, um, the items with smaller price points, I purchased outright wholesale. Um, some of the artists, uh, the products that perhaps were um, a little bit more labor intensive or perhaps cumbersome in size, like the furniture, we would do a drop ship situation. So um, like Mod Mom Furniture, for example, she at the time was um, building furniture out of her garage in Burbank. She had a, a workshop there. She's considerably larger than that now. But we, um, she had done prototypes. We had done photography. We had it up on the website. As the order would come in, I would then pass that along. And the customer was informed that there was a lead time of, you know, three to four weeks, whatever that might be, during which time she would construct that item and ship it off to them. Um, but I also, you know, for the smaller things, I did keep inventory at my home office um, that was purchased wholesale. So I would take care of all of that order fulfillment when the when the orders came in. Okay. And did... I mean, you mentioned Etsy started at the same time that you started uh-huh. Mahar Dry Goods. So, um, and then Mahar Dry Goods ended in 2010. So Correct. was, was the invention of Etsy and the popularity of Etsy like at all in connection with the decision to close it or did just the sort of whole landscape change or were you just done? I mean, what led to the end? You know, I think a lot of it was, I mean, 2008 was really sort of the height of, you know, I guess what in retrospect we've been calling the great recession. Um, you know, economics were bad. People were spending less and less of their disposable income on, you know, lovely little non-essential items. And, um, Mahar Dry Goods for me was such a passion project. I really hung on tight and I probably, 
in looking back, probably could have closed it a year earlier for financial reasons, just because things had kind of dried up. Um, you know, had I do it, had I to do it over again, I probably would have gone into this venture with a business partner who um, kind of would have helped me craft a little bit more of that end of the business. I was very good on the the design and the curation, and I think customer engagement and that sort of thing, but. You know, at the end of the day, I just, I didn't want to be dealing with the books and that sort of thing. And I don't, I don't say that that's why the, the business closed, but when, you know, just sort of the economic climate in general, um, got really tough, it just became harder and harder to pay the bills on my end. And so it just kind of became a financial necessity. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like it. And I, I also want to advocate for having a business partner. I think that that's Absolutely. probably, it's really hard to do Lessons everything. Learned. Yeah, yeah. It's so hard to do everything well, which is why I also advocated for hiring someone to do your website. I mean, mm-hmm. if that's what you're awesome at, great. But if it's not, you know, there is no shame in helping, having somebody help you who is good at that. Cause there no. are people for whom doing the books is the thing that gets them going in the morning, you know? Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned through all of this is just to hire and surround myself that I think are smarter and more talented than I am. I think there is no shame in that. And it's absolutely going to propel you forward in the right direction. Yeah, totally. All right. So let's talk about Junior Society. So was that that going on simultaneous with Mahar Dry Goods? There was some overlap and then it extended beyond as well for about a year or two. Okay. Because this was sort of also a way of curating children's products, it sounds like. Correct. Okay. This was a way for me to sort of um, uh, talk about product that I didn't didn't necessarily fit within the parameters that I had created for my own shop, but I still thought were fascinating and worth discussing. Okay. All right. And so that's like, what were your typical posts like? Um, you know, a lot, I was spending just an inordinate amount of time online, as you might imagine at the time, just like combing product websites and other people's blogs and trying to find things that were a little bit interesting and unusual. And so it wasn't always product based. Sometimes it was, um, activities or concept based, um, you know, uh, projects and events that, that might be interesting to sort of the demographic I was going after, which was primarily sort of like moms with younger children. Okay. And to me, this all kind of, it's interesting to see all of these different steps in your career, but for me, like they all sort of point to that very beginning one of being a curator and appraiser of modern art and contemporary art. Am I right? Like there's something about sort of that first job <laughs> that it sort was, of informs uh, what happens. Yeah. Afterward. Would you say that that's, that's accurate? It, that's a really good point. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that my, my background was in studio arts and art history in school. And then, um, the, uh, Praising, I just, you know, I was really fortunate to fall into it. It was sort of like a trade where I apprenticed with an appraiser for seven years and then worked with her for a total of 13. And during that time, it really sort of honed my eye as far as, um, you know, I, there were very specific things that we had to look for. And it was obviously within this framework of, you know, modern and contemporary artwork. We were kind of like post-World War One to the present and all media, you know, uh, paintings, drawings, sculptures, works on paper, 
and uh, it was a lot of time with my nose in our history books. But I think uh, you're right. It kind of allowed me to sort of see how collectors that we were working with put together their own collections of fine art, um, how they put those puzzle pieces together in a way that was really pleasing and made sense. And I, I think that in a way I was able to carry over some of those ideas to the world of craft as far as like, you know, putting together products that I thought complemented one another or artists whose, you know, visions were kind of in line with one another or my own. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, that's so interesting. And what a cool job. My husband and I collect art and we don't collect like valuable art, but we collect art made by local people who live mm-hmm. near us in Boston. We go to all the open studio events and, um, I all the, grad, yeah, the graduate school sort of portfolio shows, you know, at the end of the school year at Boston university and Boston college and all these different places and, um, and buy art. And we always have, in fact, when we were dating the first one of the first things that we did together was buy a piece of art and it it hung in his house. And I was like, if we break up, who gets the (laughs) art? Like, right. Cause like I just paid $75 and he paid $75. (laughs) So he's going to owe me if he, and it still hangs in our house, which is really funny. But I, I feel like putting together a collection that coordinates well together, um, that you can live with, that works with where you, with your house and Mm -hmm. your lifestyle. I mean, it's, this really is an art in and of itself. It is absolutely, and it's not to say that you know there's not going to be some some um, pieces that you acquire along the way that you know ten years down the road you're like yeah that really just you know that probably wasn't the best idea. Oh my gosh, um, totally! Can I just tell you we have this piece that my husband was so against. It's um it's almost like a shadow box, and there's it's called Lazarus, and there's like a bed. I'll take a picture of it. There's a bed okay. <laughs> at the bottom that's made from tin, okay, and it's like okay. really three dimensional, and then above it there's a banana that's unpeeled and it has like a picture of a banana. It has little marbles in the banana. And then above that is a naked woman who's like laying horizontally above the banana. So I was like, this is awesome. So we bought it and it's in our dining room and he looks at it with just such hatred. He's like, why, why do we have this? And people come over and they're like, oh, your art's beautiful. And then they're like, uh, oh, <laughs> But uh, I stand by still, it. It's cool, I man. Saying, I like it. There's still obviously some sort of connection if it's still hanging there. Yes, then. it's you, hanging there because I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we um, eventually, you know, when when we need an appraiser, the appraiser will come and be like, "Yeah, that one has no value." And um, we'll just move on. But um, all right. Well, cool. So it's it's. But this is so interesting to hear how all of your sort of career successes and, you know, next steps have led from one thing to the next. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm wondering about sort of video now, because I feel like video is where you are, um, and, and what you're focused on. And when you look at, you know, and and you're also very focused on being online, I feel like, because all of these years, a lot of your business has been focused on online, whether it was the blog, Mahar Dry Goods. Yeah. So when you look at the future of craft and craft instruction, craft media, um, how people are learning uh, to do new craft projects or gain new crafting skills and video, what do you see? Like, where do you think the landscape of video and craft will be going forward? 
Gosh, it's such a good question because, I, I mean, it's one of those things like you just wish you had a crystal ball. Like, yeah. I'm seeing things that are happening now with craft that, you know, five, ten years ago, I never would have imagined. I think when you and I first came onto the scene in 2005, the idea of crafting, it was almost, uh, it was a little ironic, you know. People were creating things with a little bit of a sense of irony. And I've watched, I've, you know, participated and gone to you know, craft shows all of, you know, my adult life. And now you're seeing this sort of change from ironic to complete sincerity. Like I go to these shows now and it's very sort of like earnest, almost a seventies redo of, you know, ceramics and uh, fiber arts and that sort of thing that are beautiful, but it's done with a very different sort of intent. And I think when we started in 2005, um, you know, there were some online crafting communities where people were talking about things that were they were making in a certain way, but there wasn't a lot of organized instruction. And so this sort of, um, the, you know, this advent of um, popularity of workshops is really kind of hitting a peak now. You're seeing a lot of, especially in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and I'm just most aware of them because I'm in California, um, you know, all of these studios popping up where they are offering hands-on workshops in large or small groups. Um, and, you know, and then the advent of having them on video so it's sort of evergreen and can be accessed at any time online, um, I think is interesting and fascinating. You know, as far as where it goes, you know, it's really kind of hard to tell. I mean, like I said, platforms like YouTube, where they see themselves as the future of cable television, I think they're going to kind of try to continue to develop that content and format in ways that are... Um, more user-friendly, you know, whether right now you can create playlists and keep, you know, content that you find on YouTube in sort of a, like a little, you know, book, if you will, on, on your own channel so that you can access it whenever you'd like. You know, maybe that, that becomes a little bit more interactive or morphs in some way. I mean, I see a lot of entrepreneurs that are doing um, online craft videos and they're sort of, um, they are bringing in, like they'll do a project and then they'll also offer a kit that sells all of the materials for that project. And that's a way that they're trying to kind of monetize, you know, their time and efforts. Um, so it's, you know, that's a really good question. I wish I, I wish I had a really succinct awesome answer for it. Yeah, I think, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Like I, I think that as far as organizing those videos and making it easy for people to follow particular people and access them and make direct connections to e-commerce with, from within the video, yes, um, absolutely. there's definitely opportunity there for, you know, for more sort of apps and applications to, you know, to get this to be easier for people. I feel like it's almost the same thing with podcasting. Like there's this is a new space and it's easy and accessible for people to make now. And there's a lot to be done to create that ease and accessibility for customers and consumers to be able to go directly from audio or from video to buying something and having that actual thing. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, YouTube in a very similar vein, it's completely egalitarian. Anybody can have a YouTube channel. Anybody can make a video on their, you know, their iPhone or their camera and upload it to the web. And so I think the challenge there is really sort of um, upping the game as far as the level of content and the look of the videos. And And I feel like in some sense, at least with the body of work I've done thus far, we've really, you know, tried to make some strides towards that as far as, you know, offering a high quality product, perhaps in an arena where that's not so common. And that's one way to stand out. Yeah. And it does stand out for sure. It doesn't look the way that, you know, you might expect upon just sort of hearing about it, you know, when you mm-hmm. go and you actually check it out and you click on it, and you're like, oh, wow, this is not, you know, sort of what you think of when you think of a YouTube video. You know right. what I mean? Like this is this is at a higher level. Well, and for me, some of the some of the highest compliments are people that will um, just say, you know, I I'm not crafty and I don't want to tackle any of this, but I love your videos and I'll just watch them over and over again. And right. I just like to me, like I just I love that. That in my mind is a certain level of success. Like I've achieved something there that I'm proud of. Yeah, it's like watching the Food Network. It's even right. if you're never going to cook <laughs> those things, right? It's exactly. just relaxing in some way to just watch somebody make something. You know, mm-hmm. even if you're never going to make that thing. So of course, yeah, there is something very sort of meditative and relaxing about it. Um, Um, for sure. Okay. So what are you up to right now? What are you working on now? Well, I think probably the thing that is, um, I'm obsessing over at the moment is for the first time in my entire career, I actually have an actual studio, like a place where I can go and work and shut the door. And it's such an enormous luxury. Um, my friend and colleague, uh, artist Molly Meng, she's a paper artist here in Los Angeles. She and I have taken a studio space in downtown Los Angeles, which is really kind of an exciting place to be right now. There's a lot of um, they've got a 24-7 residential community going, which they haven't had for a long time. So there's a lot of life and activity. And we're in this building that used to be a bank building. It's 100 years old, and it's got this real great sort of film noir quality to it. Um, and it's 12 floors of creative businesses. And so um, Molly and I have set it up, and we're going to start you know, offering workshops a couple times a month there and also give us a place to kind of work on personal projects. We were both working from home for years. And um, so, you know, just to have that luxury of, of a designated space, it's not huge. It's not uh, enormously well appointed, but it's ours. And, I, you know, it's something I'm really grateful and focused on at the moment. It's exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. What kind of like what, what would be a sample of what kind of workshop you might be offering? Well, like uh, this coming week, we're going to be offering one where the ground floor of our building is a store called The Last Bookstore, which is one of the largest independent retailers of um, new and used books in Southern California. And so we start with a field trip with the students down to um, their, they call it the labyrinth. They've got like a hundred thousand plus titles of used books for a dollar a piece. And so the students will pick out a volume and we're going to take it back up to the studio and we're going to um, do an altered book project where we fashion those into an advent calendar for the holiday season. Wow. That is so fun. What yeah, a I'm fun excited. way to spend a day. I mean, that's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, so that's really exciting. And, um, and what kind of, um, of work does, does your, uh, studio partner do? Like what was her 
Molly has, for years, she's done uh, a stationary line called 8mm Designs, um, where just fun and quirky uh, greeting card line, which I adore. But she also does, um, she's also had gallery shows when she was up in the Bay Area, beautiful sort of um, collage and shadow box work. And so that's kind of her area of focus. Okay, great. So you guys complement each other well. That's, yes, that's definitely. Really nice. Great. And um, Robert, where can we find you online? Um, I, you know, we were talking about Aolidia earlier and the most recent website they've done for me is robert-mahar.com. And it's, it's the first time that I haven't really had an e-commerce site or a blog. It's really sort of a personal home base for me. So it's a secondary site for you to see all of my video archive. It's all nicely arranged and easy to search. And it also, um, has other projects that I've worked on and it kind of keeps you up to date because I've got a pretty active teaching schedule as far as um, craft and DIY classes, places that I teach, um, especially in Southern California. And so that's kind of a, a good place to go to find out where the next workshop is and what it is. Yeah. And how much fun to be able to take a class from you. That sounds terrific. Oh, thank so, you. If you guys are in California, you should definitely go, <laughs> go check it out in Southern California. That sounds so We'd awesome. love that. Come yeah. visit. Yeah. And you'll be at Craftcation. I will. Me and we're going to get to meet face to face, which I'm really excited about oh, that. So happy. That's terrific. Um, all right. So I want to get to your list because you have a good list. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Of all these awesome things that you want to recommend. So, um, all right. The first one is, I'm going to say it wrong. It's origami. Am I saying You that? know, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> it's, it's origami and Instagram. Somehow they've tried to combine those oh, two words. Great. But it's yes. an Australian company, and I discovered it. I, I think I actually discovered it on Pinterest. And um, they're one of these apps that interfaces with your Instagram feed. And I don't use them all the time, but I think they're perfect for travel souvenirs. I mean, I think increasingly when we travel, our souvenirs are the photographs we take. With the advent of digital photography, you can just take as many as you'd like. You pick out the heroes, you know, the best ones. And... Um, they will print them up and they're just beautiful. These high quality, they do them in such a way that they look like vintage Polaroids, but they're done on a really thick card stock. And one of the things I love the most is that if you geotagged your photograph on the flip side of your image, they will print a little map of where that photograph was taken. And then at the very bottom, they'll list like the first couple of comments and the number of likes it received. I mean, some of that stuff I don't necessarily care about, but I love having that sort of like that map of, of, you know, where in Iceland I took that photograph, that sort of thing. That is so, so cool. And, and they, is, yeah. Uh, is the, is the paper matte or is it shiny? It is matte. It's beautifully matte and it's really it's a nice thickness and one of the best parts too is that they come packaged in this beautiful little sort of like craft paper box that is printed so it almost looks like a camera and it separates in the middle to lift it up you know so there's a top and a bottom to reveal your photographs i just like that's my favorite travel souvenir now yeah that's so cool and then you do also don't necessarily feel so pressured to put it all in an album because first of all you've got the back of each photo so you don't want to necessarily glue those down because you right. can see where they are mm -hmm. and they already come packaged in such a cute packaging that you could just stick a little label on the front and be like, you know, trip to Iceland, you know, 2014 or whatever. And then it's like a little beautiful object you can put yeah. on your book 
bookshelf. Yeah. 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 Totally. That's great. Cause I always feel so if I order the prints that I'm like, I got to put them in the album and uh, I just, never, <laughs> you know, right. Exactly. Yeah. You would be horrified to see what my uh, photo box looks like. So. We all have those, you know, those photograph graveyards, those shoe boxes in the closet. Yeah. Just has never seen organization. Yeah, totally. And I feel, I mean, as a parent, I mean, I have three kids and as I went by, as each kid came, they have less and less prints because all their photos live on iPhoto on my hard drive and Uh it's just terrible. So, um, so yeah, getting some printed out would be a good (laughs) thing. Um, otherwise they have like no childhood. Yeah. Just be sure and back your computer up. That's the mantra. Isn't that scary? I know. It is a little bit. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm just not going to, I'm going to block it out, but maybe if I ordered some and they came and, you know, were beautiful and then I took some more Instagram photos and ordered them, then that would be helpful to me. Yes. There you go. Um, all right. So the second one you want to talk about was Immaculate Heart College's art department rules. And I just read these this morning and they are pretty cool. What is the history of this? They're pretty fantastic. Yeah. They were, um, they were originated by sister Mary Carita Kent. Um, she was, uh, a nun. She was part of the Roman Catholic Order of Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary here in Los Angeles. And she was with this community from, I think it was 38 to 68, um, and uh, lived and worked within that community. And she also taught at the Immaculate Heart College and was chair of their art department. Um, she became um, really well known during the 60s and 70s for the serographs that she printed. She was a fine artist and um, very much sort of in tune with a lot of the the pop art that was going on at the time, but also with a a very strong sort of social justice bent. Um, Her work is just gorgeous. I mean, I would recommend sort of Googling. There's a website that the college maintains that you can see sort of the archive of her work. She passed away, I think, in 86. Um, But during the time in which she was the chair of the art department, she compiled this list of 10 rules. um, And um, I just think they're fantastic. I actually have recently taken on a studio space, and it was one of the things that I have up on the bulletin board in in front of me. Um, You know, and just to kind of give you an idea of, of kind of some of my favorites or what they are, like rule number one is find a place you trust in and then try trusting it for a while. You know, like that's that's kind of really valuable centering advice for somebody that's kind of creating, you know, uh, entering into a creative venture, trying to, you know, be it create a website or a podcast or a video or a work of artwork, you know, just kind of like centering yourself and getting to a place where you're comfortable and allowing yourself to be. And then other things like rule number four, consider everything an experiment. That mantra I love and repeat to myself constantly because I think there's a lot of pressure when you sit down to create something that it's got to be a certain way. And when you realize, like, no, I just have to kind of allow myself to play and experiment and have that be part of the process. Yeah. And I love number seven was my favorite. The first part of number seven is if you work, it will lead to something. Uh And that to me has really been the key. Like, you know, there's, there, there isn't really a why in the beginning, like, well, why are you doing this? Is it going to lead, you know, to profit? What's your goal? It's just like, I know I need to do this now, so I'm going to start doing it. <laughs> and then and I'm going to, you know, it. see, yeah. and, and 
sure enough, without fail, it does lead to something. Um, yeah. But you don't necessarily know what that is in the beginning. Exactly. So. Which kind of, you know, feeds in, I, we won't read them all, but rule number eight, then don't try to create and analyze at the same time. They're different processes. Like, that's so valuable because again, it's like, I think what she's giving you permission to do is kind of get out of your head for a minute, you know, stop, stop all those gears turning and really just focus on the creative output. And then later you can sit down and like in art school, we always had art critiques and, you know, it was sort of a dreaded process, but it was valuable. But trying to separate that from the making, I just, I, I love that. I love that concept. Yeah. These are worth putting on a poster or it's interesting. I know that um, you've had Lisa Congdon yeah. on the podcast, and she, uh, a few months back, kind of took this list and rehand lettered it, and it's on her website, which is beautiful. But I love this. There is the original sort of one that you can tell was done with press on letters back in the 60s, that original, you know, rules one through 10, and you can still sort of print it out from the internet there. But okay. I, it is, it's definitely a valuable thing, I think, to have in your creative space. Yeah, it really is. That's cool. I will go and look um, for Lisa's too. So that's really neat. Good to, good to know. Um, okay. So I wanted to make sure we talked about, um, I'm going out of order. I hope that's okay. No worries. Um, <laughs> so this is Castle in the Air, which is a store and you recommend their doublet crepe paper. And I have to say, I really have never worked with crepe paper, but I always admire like crepe paper flowers. I feel like Martha Stewart and we have to talk about Martha Stewart, by the way. Oh, sure. Um, I feel like Martha Stewart's always doing really awesome crepe paper projects and I'm always like, I should get some crepe paper. And then I just like, all I have is streamers, you know, I don't have like real crepe paper. So tell us about why you like this. Well, it's just, you know, crepe paper in general is just one of those, like it's, it's got this vintage appeal to me because I think, especially during the depression era, when so many other materials were, um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't necessarily go out and purchase real flowers because of the cost and the expense. And so people were making more things and crepe paper was mass produced. And it's this beautiful creping is almost this, this machining process of putting all of these sort of cuts into the, into the paper that gives it this stretchy, almost fabric like quality. And, um, there are, fewer and fewer companies that are still making it. And this store in Berkeley called Castle in the Air, first of all, is an amazing, amazing space. They've got such fantastic, quirky art supplies and handcrafted objects. It's just a joy to kind of go in there. It's always one of my go-tos when I'm up in the Bay Area. But they're one of the few companies that imports this German crepe paper and Dublé crepe paper, um, is it's double-sided. So either side of the crepe paper is slightly different shade of color. So that in and of itself creates this really interesting um, material to work with. And it also, because it's two layers of this crepe paper that have been fused together, it's got a really nice weight and body to it. So it becomes very sculptural. And because it is creped, you can do all of these amazing um, you know, cupping and pulling, and it maintains the form um, in a very unexpected way for paper. It's a little magical in my mind. Yeah, but, it seems like it totally is, and the colors are really bright too. Um, oh, they're fantastic! Yeah, and there's yeah. two shades on one on one sheet. It's really cool. I wonder what the what is the history of crepe paper? Like, why do people? You're saying people had it 
around to craft with when time, you know, times got tough and, and fresh flowers were expensive. So, but why do they have crepe paper? Like what were, you know, I don't know what the genesis of it was. Most of it was manufactured in the States sort of like during forties, fifties, sixties by the Denison company, which I don't think is even, uh, I don't think they're around any longer, but they, during that time, put out masses of all of these craft booklets and you can find a lot of them on eBay now that are like, you know, decorating for the school bazaar with crepe paper, decorating for the school dance with crepe paper. It just, they really had, um, you know, they were focused in on this handmade market and were used as, um, you know, decorating the gymnasium and streamers or creating, um, you know, inexpensive tablecloths for your booth at the school bazaar. Like it was very, it was just a common, common material that you found everywhere. Now where the, where the origin of that is, I'm not entirely yeah, sure. I, I should look into that. It's interesting to know, like why, why was this particular, process done on on paper to make it this, this texture, you know? I mean, it seems like such an obvious craft material, but um, but why make it in the first place? I don't know. It's, it's yeah. kind of mysterious. Good so, question. Yeah, That's we'll a good to, reporter's question, we'll Abby. I don't out. know. <laughs> but it's a joy to work with. It's a really fun material. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's really cool. So, so that brings me to Martha. Um, so you were on the Martha Stewart Show. What year was that? Oh, my heart. I think it was... Uh, I think it was 2009. Okay. That seems about right. Like that was when Martha Stewart, like the, the TV show was going strong. Um, right. yeah. She and... had a couple more seasons after that before the network, uh, the network show closed down. I was yeah. so sad. I love that show. I know. I know. Um, okay. So you made these adorable sock skeletons, <laughs> right? And Martha, I did. yeah, I watched, did. I watched the segment just the Thank other you. day. And, um, so what was it like? I mean, so you went to New York and I, I've heard a little bit from people who've been on Martha, sort of all of the, the prep work that goes into it. And then she sort of just comes out right when they're filming and that's yeah. kind of all you get. I mean, my introduction was during the time that I had Mahar Dry Goods, the woman that was the um, producer for all of her craft segments contacted me because she was interested in some of the artists that I was working with. And so we kind of developed this rapport and every four or five months she might send me a little email and say, hey, what are you looking at now? Or, you know, can I get in contact with this person? And so we had this nice back and forth. And during that time, I would say maybe four of my artists ended up being guests on the show, which was great. And at a certain point then she said, you know what, why don't you submit some projects of your own? Of course, I was thrilled out of my head and I put together this like elaborate box of four different projects, all sort of different varying, you know, themes and subject matters. And they chose the Halloween one, which of course I was thrilled by because it was, you know, that's, that's Martha's holiday. Yeah, um, it totally is. And can I just interject by yeah. saying at that same time, she contacted me and oh. I had like a really nice phone conversation with them and I submitted a project as well. But as I said earlier, it was overly complex and I was uh, not then selected to be on the show. But I was really cool when I talked to them on the phone. I know, <laughs> it right? Was a it's neat day. Of, yeah. Especially having been someone who like saved every magazine from the day yes. one, you know, just My really husband kind of... was like, the Martha Stewart show is on the phone. I was like, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
<laughs> there was like my heart just like stopped. It's but exciting. Anyway. Yes. It was exciting. But yeah, there was a lot of advanced prep work and um, flew to New York the day before. We kind of went through a dry run. And then the day of, it's exactly what you said. It was like, they brought me out during a commercial break. She was very cordial and kind, introduced herself, asked me how to pronounce my name, where I was from, and then we were on. And it was kind of like the eight minutes that we were on camera together was really the eight minutes we spent together. And she really is learning it right there along with you, Um, which I think, you know, they did to kind of like keep it fresh. And it's also sort of, you know, the number of shows that they were doing, I think it'd be impossible to completely master every single one. But that's where her kind of crew came in to make sure that the steps were meticulously laid out and everything was in order. Um, But it was a it was a great experience. It was a great experience. Yeah. I, uh, and what happened afterward? Like, what was the aftermath like for you? So this happened. It was a huge thing. And then it went on the air. And then what? Well, they were kind enough to allow me. I was making kits for those sock skeletons at oh, the time. Oh, right. In the coffin. Exactly. It was sort of, you know, it was sort of my riff on um, a sock monkey pattern. Um, We just made them a little bit longer limbed and gangly and added in ribs and these button eyes and they were cute. And so I put together very simple kits with beautifully designed instructions and we packaged them up in these little cardboard coffins and we talked about them on air, which was very nice. And then they included links. And so we did have a nice little flood of orders as, as a result of that afterwards. I think, you know, you kind of always going go in hoping it's going to be like you know just kind of the niagara falls of orders it just kind of all comes in and it wasn't quite that but it was definitely a nice it was a nice bump right and i think this connects back to what we were talking about earlier which is the connection between either audio or in this case video and actually buying things versus the connection between reading something and buying it. And, you know, I, um, I had Jess Brown on the show a few episodes ago and she was featured in Martha Stewart magazine. And one of the things that she was saying, first of all, the flood of orders that came after that piece, um, was published was enormous for her. And the other thing she said was, you know, people hang on to magazines for years and Mm -hmm. they're in doctor's offices. They're in, you know, piles of magazines that are, you know, shoved in the corner and you dig in there and find it three years later. And so she still receives orders today from, you know, people who want exactly the doll that's in the magazine. Yeah. That was so many years ago. Um, and I think that making that jump, I mean, from a magazine, but especially even online, when you click a, a link, that's a, you know, a live link directly to the product. I mean, that is so easy. Absolutely. Whereas when you're watching something on video or you're listening to something in your headphones and you're in the car or you're out for a run or, you know, you're sitting at night watching TV with your family, um, to get people to then buy something, it's harder. Right. Right, right. I think, yeah, once they see you have it in your hands, and it could even be a product that I'm not necessarily endorsing or being paid to endorse, but it's just something that is part of my craft arsenal that I'm constantly, you know, got in my hand and I'm using with a certain amount of repetition. And if I've got links to it, absolutely. It's a very easy, accessible, straightforward method of getting you to that end result. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I think there's some work to be done there to help make that easier for people. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's cool. Well, congratulations on that Martha thing. That was good. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. That's a little feather in my 
cat yeah, that I'm totally. going to be proud of. I feel of. like yeah. you can always be like, and I was on the Martha Stewart show, uh-huh. and people will always be impressed. <laughs> always, you know? That, right. that, that lasts forever. So, yes. Well, Robert, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall Street Naps podcast. It is my pleasure, Abby. It's been so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. And I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time. <laughs>